welcome to RUF. Thanks so much for coming on a busy night. I know it's a busy time of year. Um, hey, so we've been doing a study up until spring break on the life of Peter. And uh, tonight we're getting to a passage um, that I think is it's a challenging passage because it's one of those things where Jesus says some, some hard words to the disciples and a bunch of them leave. And then he asks a pretty profound question to Peter and the 12. Uh, so I'm going to dive right in. The passage is John 6, uh, verse 60 to 71. It's in your handout. If you want to follow along, here's what John writes. It says, when many of his disciples heard it, Jesus has just fed the 5,000. He's been teaching them about what it means that he's the bread of life. He's said some hard things we're going to talk about. And he said, and when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Um, this is a heavy passage, so I'm going to pray for us. And then I want to get into it tonight. Let's pray first there. Jesus, we, we seek you for your grace. We do seek you. Um, we, we thank you that your words are spirit and life, and you send your spirit to make them alive to us. And I pray that that would happen as I speak and I preach. Would you make your words alive to us? Um, and Lord, would you uh, help us to know what to do with hard words, the hard words that you say, the hard words that you give us in Scripture, the hard teachings, the parts that are hard about following you and being faithful to you. Um, Lord, would you... Be gracious to us tonight to open our eyes, to open our ears, to um, till up the hard soil of our hearts that we might receive um, the grace that you offer us tonight. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. So I was thinking about um, one of the things over the year. I've done RF for 11 years, five years at Georgia Southern, uh, going on six years here. And one of the things that's chronically said is a lot, especially if you're not familiar with RUF type music, RUF music can be hard for you. Um, and that has nothing to do with our skillful musicians who we love. Um, but I, I think about RF, RF music is often like drinking your coffee black. I don't know. I just recently in the last year or so started drinking my coffee black. And there's that first moment when you try and you're like, this is disgusting. I don't want to ever do this again. And then there's like a couple more moments where you're like, oh, this isn't so bad. And then finally you're like, oh, this is amazing and delicious. Sometimes RF music can feel like that. I don't know if you relate to that or not. Um, that's how it was for me. But I was thinking about one of our favorite hymns, if you've been with us, that we have sung for forever is a, a hymn called I Ask the Lord. And it's basically this person, if you know the story at all, it's this person asking Jesus to do wonderful things in them. And what this person finds is Jesus does something really surprising and disappointing in them. Uh, this idea that Jesus loves us enough to disappoint us because he knows there's a, there are places where he needs to frustrate us that we might actually be more in line with who, what he wants for us. And so there's that line that I love, Yea, more with his own hand he seemed, intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, cast out my feelings, laid me low. 
And when I sing that, I can look back on the way Jesus in my life has done that in moments. He's done it in big ways and in small ways. Disappointed me because he loves me. Um, frustrated me because he wants me to be more in line with, with what he wants for me instead of what I want for me. And I trust that you've either experienced that as a Christian or maybe you are yet to experience that. But one of the promises of Jesus is that you will, that he loves you enough to do this in you. And so what I want to do is kind of look at this passage because this is exactly what happens in this passage tonight. Is Jesus said some really, really hard things, and it's too hard for a huge amount of his disciples. And you understand his disciples are not just the 12. He has this bigger group of disciples that have been following him. And it's so hard that they, they leave. They, that's one of the saddest verses in Scripture. It says they stopped walking with Jesus. So this is how I want to do it tonight. I want to ask, first, why many left? Second, why some stayed? And then lastly, I just want to think about how the, we're in the same kind of dilemma, same place um, as these disciples were. So first, let's think about why, why did they leave? Why many left? And again, to understand the framework, so we just talked about Jesus walking in the water, which was just after Jesus feeding the 5,000. And remember, he walks in the water to be with his disciples. And then he's taken them to teach them in Capernaum in a synagogue that's literally just a few blocks from where Peter grew up. And he's basically explaining to them what he's just done. He's basically saying, okay, I've fed you with manna, I've fed you with bread, with this fish and loaves, and I've satisfied your stomachs, but I want you to know that this is actually a picture of me. Like, Moses fed with manna, but I'm actually greater than Moses. I am the bread of life. And then he goes on to say some really weird things about if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot be my disciple. Some really hard things. And by the time he's done with this sermon, almost everyone is pissed at him. Almost everyone is disappointed. Almost everyone is really upset with him for one reason or another. And one of the ways to think about it is they've stomached his food that he's just fed them, but they can't stomach his teaching anymore. They can't stomach what he's telling them. It's hard to say what precisely they were so offended by. I think it's probably a, like a pick your poison kind of a thing. Every, anything from he keeps using the divine name and how can a man do that to he literally in a staggeringly egotistical way, if he's not the son of God, just said nothing on this earth can satisfy you but me which is a pretty staggering claim. Uh, he's also he uses this really gruesome illustration where he says part of what it means to have faith in me is you eat me and drink me, which he's, he's foreshadowing his death that's coming, which they have no idea what to do with. And then he says something even harder where he basically says, okay, if you can't receive that I didn't come from this earth, I actually, though I was born with my parents, who a lot of you know, I actually descended from heaven. What are you going to do when you actually watch me ascend back to heaven? They can't deal with the miraculous the overly miraculous things that he's saying he's going to do. Here's another way we can think about it. For some, he was too political. For others, he was not political enough. They wanted him to be the king, and he didn't want to be the king. Uh, For some, he was too heavenly. For others, he was too earthly. Uh, For some, he was too harsh. For others, he was too merciful. For some... He was, uh, they didn't know what to do for all of them. They didn't know what to do with this foreshadowing of his death. And they had no idea what to do with this foreshadowing of his resurrection and ascension. He was saying things that were hard for them to receive. Here's the best way to think about it. Here's the, I think the simplest way to say it. This is true for you and me today. The simplest way to say it is Jesus would not safely fit into their agendas and aspirations. Jesus would not safely fit into their plans, their hopes, their dreams, their agenda, their aspirations. And up until this point, you have to understand they thought he would. They thought he could. And this is the moment, the breaking point moment, where they realize he can't. Uh, I love the way that one guy says it. He says, for anyone brought up in one of the varieties of first century Judaism, 
All that Jesus had said was demanding in every sense. They might have been prepared to follow a prophet like Moses or a would-be Messiah as long as such figures kept within the bounds of the agendas and aspirations that they had had in mind. Now, here's what this means for you and me. Here's where it gets hard for us. This means that if you don't have a Jesus who can disagree with you, you don't have the real Jesus. And if you have a Jesus who only ever agrees with you, you don't have the real Jesus. Get you a Jesus who can do both. Get you a Jesus who can, the real Jesus who can dis, who disagrees with you, confronts you, corrects you, and who doesn't just go along with your little agendas and your little aspirations. Um, so I'm not a huge fan of sweeping generalizations about generations, but Scott and I were just having this conversation. We were talking about the difference. I'm technically born in 1980. I'm at the back end of a gen. I'm a Gen Xer, which means I am deeply cynical about the world. All of you in here are millennials, whatever that means. One of the things it means is you're really idealistic about the world. If we can make it that sweeping, just let's make it that sweeping and just keep roll with it. So, uh, For me, part of what Jesus is doing, like, so you, in your idealism, believe you really can make the world a better place. I, in my cynicism, really do believe I'm the reason or one of the reasons the world is kind of a crappy place. And there's a distinction there. I realize that sometimes when I use cynical jokes in the sermon and none of you laugh, I realize the disconnect, Gen X, millennial. So part of what Jesus does to me is he challenges my cynicism, right? It's like he said, I was envisioning this today. It's like he's saying to me, hey, yeah, the world is a dark and broken place. You have a dark and broken heart. But also remember that one time in the Bible where I like defeated sin and death and the devil and rose again to begin healing the world beginning with you. This came out again for me last night. Like we went, uh, Andy hooked us up with the opportunity to serve the homeless with a church of the apostles, which was really, really uh, cool. And afterwards we were praying and the guy that leads the ministry was praying for this one friend, and he prayed. He said, Lord, would you show this guy who was struggling with addiction, he said, would you show him that you were stronger than his addiction? And it was one of those moments where it challenged my cynicism. Because in my cynicism, sometimes I don't think Jesus is bigger than addiction. And he is. He defeated sin and death and addiction and has power to do that in our lives. It's a process. But here's what I want to say to you is Jesus also doesn't just challenge my cynicism. He also challenges your idealism. And part of what he's going to do in your life, and, and just tuck this away if that doesn't make sense now, but think about the life of Jesus from our earthly perspective. It did not go according to plan. Like, Jesus died way too soon. He didn't really accomplish anything from an earthly perspective. The movement failed at his death, gruesome death. He died in a way he should never have died, at a time he should never have died, in a, in a way that he should never have died. And if you're looking at it from an earthly perspective, part of the devastation of the disciples was it seemed like a total waste. And what I'm trying to get you to see is that's still how he works in our lives. Here's what this means. This means his work in your life means you're, you're probably, can't say that I'm not Jesus, but you're probably going to change more diapers than worlds. It probably means that you're going to get more in touch with the important way that you cause harm in the world maybe more than getting involved in important causes in the world, which is important. It means that sometimes Jesus is going to get you to know your neighbors' names and stories more than actually be worried and concerned with getting your name out into the world. It means that sometimes your life is going to feel like a total waste 
and Jesus is going to say, stop with your idealism. Would you let me work in small, hidden, beautiful ways? That I say the kingdom comes. It's a mustard seed. It's not a vineyard. I don't know. It's not a massive, impressive thing. It's an olive. It's a mustard seed that grows small. I love the way one pastor says, Jesus doesn't call you to be awesome. He calls you to be faithful. And so he challenges your idealism. Here's another way to say it. The real Jesus was both too small and too big for them. He was too small for them because they had bigger aspirations and agendas. But he was too big for them to fit into those, to fit safely into those idealistic plans. There's a scene at the end of 500 Days of Summer. It's one of my favorite breakup movies. And um, you remember the scene at the end, if you've seen it, there's a scene they're interviewing this guy, Paul, about his girlfriend, Robin. And they're just talking about relationships and how real love works, how real intimacy works. And they ask him, tell us about the girl of your dreams. And he says this at the end. It's, I think, a powerful moment. He says, Robin, she's not the girl of my dreams. The girl of my dreams, I'm just going to quote him, the girl of my dreams would have bigger boobs, like sports more, be a little hotter. But Robin is better than the girl of my dreams. She's real. And part of what Jesus is doing, part of what I'm saying to you is, the Jesus of your dreams is too small, and yet he's too big. And the real Jesus, who can challenge you, if he's Jesus, he's not going to always agree with you. He's going to challenge you. He's going to challenge your aspirations. He's going to challenge your agendas. He's going to challenge what you believe. He's going to challenge how you behave. He's going to challenge everything in your life because he loves you, and the real Jesus is far better than the Jesus of your dreams. So first, why some left? They couldn't deal with the real Jesus. But second, why some stayed? Uh, So we don't really know how many disciples exactly left. We know it was a lot where it was pretty depressing. Um, It makes me think of, there's this great line uh, by this guy, Mark Iaconelli. He says, if you have a group of 12 people who don't understand your illustrations and one of them wants to kill you, congratulations, you have a ministry like Jesus, which gives me hope sometimes. Um, So Jesus, the crowds have left, like a massive amount of people. There's an exodus in his ministry. And so Jesus turns to his closest friends, the 12, and he says, what about you guys? Are you all leaving me too? Are you all going to stop walking with me too? And I I really want to slow down here and say, this is the hardest part of the passage, but actually I think one of the most important, is this is a question at the heart of faith. Is this question of basically coming to terms with have you really counted the cost of what it means to really follow Jesus? Have you really understood that the Christian life is not all unicorns and rainbows? That, that following Jesus often is hard. And it's hard sometimes because of what he asks you to do. But it's also hard sometimes because of what he does in your life that you don't understand or, or is confusing. So he asked the 12, do you want to go away as well? And, and what you're going to learn about Peter is Peter is maybe the closest friend of Jesus, but he often speaks for the 12. He's kind of like the representative of the 12. And Peter, in this beautiful moment, says, just I'm going to quote him, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And what I want you to see is this wasn't a catechism answer. This wasn't like something he studied and gave to Jesus. This was something that was spoken from the heart that was so close to despair a heart, can you imagine the scene where you've just seen in one moment the movement of Jesus totally dissipated numerically, right? Like the crowds are gone. Like Jesus has gone from popular to unpopular in this moment. 
And can you imagine? It, but not, not only has he done that, but he's said some really hard things that they don't understand what it means for them yet. And they're confused by it. And they're saddened by it. And they're frustrated by it. And here's this, Peter, his heart is so close to despair. And yet, he's bringing that despair to Jesus. Uh, this is what Michael Card's um, song, singer-songwriter calls, this is the idea of the sermon. He calls it loyal despair. Where, here's what I want to say to you. There are moments, there, if this doesn't come for you, that's fine. It's going to come for you. Where you don't understand the work of God in your life. And you don't understand why he's told, told you to believe something or told you to do something. And it's a moment where you are tempted to despair. And the question is, what are you going to do with that despair? Are you going to take it a, a different place, different direction, to an alternate, alternative place? Or are you going to take it back to Jesus? Uh, here's the way that this one guy said that I love it. He says this. He says, it can often comfort even doubting disciples, and this is all of us from time to time, to appreciate Peter's present question, which simply translated, listen to this, which simply translated means, Lord, the alternatives are not good. I love that one. If the crucified risen Jesus is not God's word to the world, please, anyone, give us a more credible word. Look around. Test the alternative answers to the world's major questions, and we, too, We'll come to Peter's perfectly put question and affirmation. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of deep, lasting life. But I love that line. The alternatives are not good. Because here's what this means for faith. I think sometimes we picture faith as being on fire for Jesus. And I want you to see this is not what faith is in this passage. Faith is actually a loyal despair. Where it's like, Jesus, I'm not sure what you're saying or what you're doing. But the alternatives are not good. But it means faith has to include a searching out of the alternatives, right? It has to include doubts and confusions and questions. It means you've thought to yourself things like this. This is from my own moments of despair. What if this whole thing isn't true? Uh, what if Jesus isn't real? What if I can't trust the Bible? Uh, what if... The church is just a social construct. What if the beginning of everything was pure accident? What if the end of everything, there is nothing? You have moments, if you're being honest, in your faith like this, with questions like this. And the question is, where are you going to go with them? Are you going to go back to Jesus? This happened just the other day. This is like the illustration. If you have parents who care deeply about Christian education they can, and they listen to the podcast, they can tune out at this point because my kids were in public school, great public school right down the road from us. But my son comes down the other day and somehow the conversation, I wasn't there, but my wife was telling me about it. It just happened yesterday where he basically was like, mom, you know, God didn't create the moon. She's like, what? Yeah. You know, the moon is just this rock that essentially came off. I don't even know what he's, I don't, I'm not a science guy. Some of you could tell me the rage kind of came off the earth and it rose, but God didn't create it. And it's a moment where, okay, number one, are you just trying to be like a, a jerk to us right now, which is often the way of some of my kids? And number two, like, how do we enter into these, this question with you? We don't want to do the thing where we're like, well, listen, your science teacher is an idiot, and let us give you some answers so you can have a God's not dead moment where he, like, drops the chalk and it bounces off his leg and it doesn't hit the ground and, oh, God is real. No, like, we don't want to pit the Bible against science, right? But we do want to enter into his question and be like, let's talk about that. Let's talk about how God made the moon. I don't know. He hung it in the stars. Um, let's talk about, the. does he use processes? 
Let's, in other words, faith means entering into these questions that could tempt you to despair, but taking them back to Jesus. That's what the Psalms are, y'all. The Psalms are the place where you take these painful, hard things that happen that you can't reconcile with the view of God, but you take them back to this God that because you know him, you love him, and you trust him. And this is what's fascinating in this passage is the, the contrast that's set up, I don't know if you caught this, is, is Peter and Judas. And if you think about that contrast, it's fascinating because they both have despair. But one of them, Peter, takes that despair to Jesus. And one of them, Judas, goes a different direction. He actually settles for a little bit of money and a more popular movement. And by the end, he can't deal with himself, so he kills himself. But he still, even at the end, he could have taken his despair back to the risen Jesus. And he didn't. He went a different direction. But here's my question for you. If you haven't had a moment like this, you're going to, where you're tempted just to punt the whole thing. Um, I was recently thinking about one of those moments for us where our youngest, she's five now, her name's Sadie, and, but she was born, I've shared this before, she was born with a condition called Dandy Walker. All we knew was the, the spectrum is huge. Like they, All they could tell us was she could die right after she's born or she could go live a healthy life. And thankfully, by God's providence, she's here. She's, if you met, met her, you wouldn't know anything's wrong with her. She does a little bit of occupational therapy now, but she's great. But I vividly remember being in a hospital room in Charleston, South Carolina, with a, uh, with a uh, misguided but caring neuro, uh, pediatric neurologist who said, I strongly urge you guys to consider aborting this baby girl because we can't tell you what's going to happen and you don't want to bring a child into the world who's severely disabled or might die. And, of course, it was a shocking moment because you don't ever envision yourself in a moment actually having that conversation, which is just weird. But it's a moment where we didn't know what was going to happen. And it was one of those moments where it's like, Jesus, what are you doing? Like, why are you doing this? But you've, ha- if you've, you've had them, or if you haven't had them, you're going to have them. Moments where you ask the hard questions. Why, Father, why do you let children be born dead? Father, why do you let children be born to die? Father, why do you let children be born with severe disabilities? These are questions, and I'm trying to say, if you think you have the answers to these questions, can I just say you're just wrong? You're Job's counselors who God rebukes the crap out of at the end of Job and says, you didn't know what you were talking about. Shut up. Listen to my servant Job, who at least was honest in his faith, where he said, I don't know what you're doing. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. And I'm trying to say, if you think that you have all the answers, you're missing what Peter is saying here. You're missing this idea of faith as loyal despair, where you bring your despair back to Jesus. I remember reading Flannery Cotter's got these great letters and in this one letter, she has this line that just kills me. It's so good. She says, a God you understood would be less than yourself. And it's this beautiful moment where she's saying, part of faith is you don't understand all the ways. The disciples left because they didn't understand and couldn't control what Jesus was saying and doing. And so they left. He was a God they couldn't control. And, and instead, Peter and the disciples bring their despair to Jesus so the question is, where, where do you go with your despair? And Peter is saying Jesus is the only safe place to go. You can bring your questions to him. You can bring your doubts to him. You can bring your frustrations to him. You can bring your confusion to him because he's big enough to handle it and he's good enough to be patient with you in it. This is the last thing I want you to see. This is how, how are we in the same predicament? How are we in the same place as the disciples? Uh, here's what I have for us. So sometimes I think we do talk a lot about being on fire for Jesus, and we think about faith as, as doing big things for Jesus or being sold out for Jesus. And I think I know what we mean by that. Like, of course, like I want you to boldly 
follow Jesus, and I want you to be passionate. I want to be passionate about the gospel. But I want to go back to this idea of, of what Peter is giving us here, this idea of faith as loyal despair that says, Jesus, I don't know what you're doing. Jesus, I don't really know what you're saying. I'm wrestling with it, but I know that I'm sticking with you because I can trust you and you love me. And if there's anyone in the world I can trust, it's you. It's loyal despair. So what would loyal despair look like? Well, I think it looks like three things. Here's the first one. Loyal despair looks like faithfulness to the words of Jesus. I'm just trying to paint a little sketch of what loyal despair looks like. First of all, it looks like faithfulness to the words of Jesus, a.k.a. the Bible, a.k.a. the scriptures, whatever you want to call it. I don't know what cool people call it these days. Let's just go with the Bible. I don't mean like we're not nuanced or scholarly in our approach and our understanding of Scripture and how it applies to our lives. Absolutely. For like a nuanced, scholarly, I don't have any other words. I think you know what I'm saying, dealing with Scripture. But what I do mean is, what about the hard parts of Scripture? Like we're about to do Leviticus <laughs> after spring break, which is going to be fun. And part of why I want to do it is I just want to do a hard part of scripture with you to say like God gave us this book because he loves us and wants us to know him and we're going to talk about that but what do you do with the hard parts of scripture I vividly remember you know all in this passage we could have gone to like predestination conversations a big one but I remember vividly the first place I was confronted with that my roommate my friend just kept saying read Romans 9 why don't you just read your bible more and I was like screw you man I've read my bible all my life in which I really hadn't read like most of the old testament because you'd fall asleep trying to read the old testament But it was a moment for me where I was like, do I believe that God gave this hard saying that I'm wrestling with, but who's going to win? Am I going to wrestle, out-wrestle the Bible to say what I want it to say? Or is the Bible, a.k.a. Jesus, going to out-wrestle me to kind of bring me into line with truth that's hard? Uh, I'll never forget reading a book on it, and the guy said, I'm required to believe, teach, and obey what the Bible actually says, not what I wish it said. So are you going to be faithful even in the moments that are hard and confusing to Scripture, to the Bible, to the words of Jesus. Secondly, that means faithfulness to the people of Jesus, a.k.a. the church slash body of Christ. Again, let's just go with the church. You know, we said this in our off. Our whole aim is to, like, college ministry is a beautiful thing, but it's a fading thing. Like, the rest of your Christian life is going to be lived out in this local thing called the church, which is actually you. Like, the church is not a place, it's a people you are. You belong to Jesus. You are the church. So go embrace the awkwardness of the church. Go live out. Part of what it means to bring your despair to Jesus is to bring it to his people in the context of his people, the church. Um, you, you are the church. Go be with your people. Go be who you are in all of its awkward glory because that's part of where the rest of your Christian life is going to be lived. It's not part of it. It is where your Christian life is going to be lived out. And then the last thing, the third thing, is constantly reminding yourself of the faithfulness of Jesus to you. Part of what's interesting when we think about this idea of loyal despair, when Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? He has no idea where Jesus is going. Jesus is trying to tell them where he's going. He's trying to tell them this flesh and blood thing is the cross. And he's going to this gruesome end. And when you think about the cross, the cross is the ultimate moment, right, of loyal despair. Where here is Jesus And he cries on the cross. He takes the Psalm 22, words of Psalm 22 on his lips, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because Jesus is actually facing true despair. 
Like Jesus is actually facing true darkness, the darkness of what it means for God to abandon his people, the darkness of what it means for God to give us over to sin. He gives Jesus over to sin and the punishment of sin on the cross, but Jesus does that. He faces the darkness, that the darkness of our despair, not only that it might be safely brought to him, but that it might not win. That the darkness even of your depression, you belong to Jesus, it's not going to win. That, that Jesus faced the ultimate despair, that your despair might become more loyal as you bring it to him. I'll close with this. There's a, I don't know if you ever listened to, this is probably a 36-year-old thing, so just bear with it. Uh, have you ever listened to StoryCorps? I don't know if you're an NPR person. Just roll with me. It's these beautiful, like, quick five-minute stories that every... I'm telling you, you can't... I dare you to listen to one story core and see if you can listen to it and not cry. Like, they just are made just tear, instant tears. And this one I'm listening to is about this uh, Lutheran pastor who had... He lives in Minnesota, and he had lost his job. And he needed... He had a family, though. He had a daughter um, named Charlie. And he needed work, so he started working as a garbage man. And it's this fascinating thing. He, he ended up loving it so much that he now is a pastor slash garbage man who also teaches classes at University of Minnesota, and, uh, which is like, can you do that much work? I guess you can. It makes me feel lazy. But So he talks about this idea of being a garbage man, and he talks about how people's – he's like, actually, because I'm both, I realize that people's – I actually get to know people better because tr- their trash tells me a, a greater story, a truer story. And he talks about uh, this one time he came across a note that was written in the back of an envelope. And the note simply said this. It said, I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and I just can't stand the pain anymore. And he talks about he looked at that note and he said, you know, as a pastor, I so badly wanted to knock on this person's door. But as a garbage man, I felt like that's not my place. So he said, I did all I knew how to do and and I prayed for them. And he says, he goes on to tell the story, he ends it like this. At this point, I'm like weeping. But he goes on to tell the story of his daughter, Charlie, her first words were, it goes. And he said, it all goes. And he said this, I'll quote him. He says, "Um, it all goes. And to do the trash, it's sort of a reminder that every small thing that we ever do for other people is valuable, even if it might be really small and unnoticed. Here's why I keep thinking about this. Do you think this guy, John Marlboro, thought he was this was going to be his life? Like, do you think he dreamed about being a garbage man <laughs> slash pastor? And yet, this is the way of Jesus in him. But do you see how satisfying it is to him? But do you see how small it is? It's not ideal. I mean, like, let's let's let that crush our idealism. But then, do you also see that Jesus isn't calling you? to be awesome. He really is calling you to be faithful. And for me, this is a beautiful picture of what does loyal despair look like? I think it looks like this guy, John Marlboro, simply he had to have a moment where he was like, what am I doing? But Lord, I know you've called me to work. So I guess I'm going to be a garbage man. And yet somehow Jesus not only met him there, but really has worked beautiful, wonderful things, not only in others' lives, but in his own life. Do you take your despair to Jesus? Do you have a vision of faith that's like this? Loyal despair. Trusting Jesus with the hard, the confusing, the doubts, and letting him meet you in them. Let's pray together. Uh, Jesus, would you meet us in the same way? Would you meet us um, in our questions? Would you meet us in the places right now where we feel confused or um, we're just having a hard time?
We thank you that you love to do that, that you love to show grace to us in those places, that you love to show your faithfulness to us in those places. And Lord, I pray that you simply uh, would, would do as you promise and meet us uh, even tonight in those ways. We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen.